like and animal-like. Uh, so, uh, some of them are autotrophic. They're green. They're doing photosynthesis. Happy as can be. That's what they do. Um, some of them, and in fact, you can take one with chloroplast and you can treat it in a way that it loses all its chloroplast, and it will start feeding like a heterotroph then, like an animal-like organism. And some of them just do both. They do photosynthesis and they will engulf other organisms. Um, so where do they fit? Well, they don't. That's the whole problem with protease as a group. They don't fit anywhere else. They're that, the miscellaneous file of, of, the, uh, of the living things. So we, they are flagellated. So they have a flagellum. So they apparently are related to the flagellated protozoans. Uh, we, we looked at a few of those. Uh, mostly uh, parasitic ones or, or pathogenic ones, but they're related to those. They're always unicellular, almost always freshwater, and they reproduce primarily by uh, something very similar to binary fission. In other words, they just simply divide. They don't have a, a particularly a sexual process. So this is the basic body plan. Uh, you know, pellicle, which is that kind of flexible, but you know, kind of partly rigid, partly flexible outer covering at, uh, over around the cell. has a couple of flagella at this uh, here, and this is the front. One's very long, the other one's much smaller. They have contractile vacuoles to get rid of the excess water, just like the paramecium did that we, that we looked at. Uh, and then in addition, it has this, um, what we call an eye spot. It's a light-sensitive pigment so that it knows when it's in the light, which if you're going to do photosynthesis, is something that you have to be able to do. It's be able to know the difference between where there's a lot of sunlight and where there's not. Okay. Uh, and of course, they have these chloroplasts here, which is what makes them green. Uh, so these are very common. I think I mentioned last time uh, that they like, uh, uh, they like places with lots of organic material, but very common freshwater organisms. So these are, they bridge between the animal-like and the plant-like, because they kind of do both, okay? Now, the next group are called dinoflagellates. Um, there's one example there, I think, we have, yeah, there's another one, it's come up too. Now, these live in both freshwater and uh, saltwater, and uh, some are bioluminescent. Uh, we know that some of them are symbiotic. Uh, they, live, they live inside of sea anemones and corals. In other words, inside the cells of the sea anemone and the coral, you will find dinoflagellates. They are photosynthetic. Okay? So they absorb light. Uh, it appears that they share some of the nutrients that they produce with their host. And in return, uh, the host provides them certainly an element of protection. Um, they have two flagella. You can't see it well in that diagram, but I've got another one in the next page that will be much more obvious. But these are very common, very commonly found freshwater and marine habitats. Now, they're, they're important, obviously, to the corals and to the sea anemones. They're also important to us because they, some of the species of this have the ability to produce very, very rapidly, reproduce very, very rapidly, and they produce a toxin, or a variety of toxins. So here's an example of a red tide, and, and here's uh, 
an example of a red tide from the air. This is a boat right here, uh, a research vessel. So you can tell that this is a very large area. The water is that color because there are so many of these things in it that it turns it red, literally red. Now you can see the flagellum. One is in this groove right here, and then there's another one that goes off. And when they move the two flagella, they kind of rotate like tops through the water. Okay. Um, now, the toxin um, kill, can kill fish uh, and sometimes shellfish. But even when it doesn't kill them, the shellfish, like oysters and clams, will feed on these things. They accumulate the toxin in them. And when people eat them, they get sick. Called paralytic shellfish poisoning, and, it, and uh, there are cases of that every year. Not a lot, because we monitor this now pretty closely. Uh, some of this is monitored by satellite, okay, uh, where these blooms occur. And when they occur, then shellfishing in those areas is closed for a period of time until the toxin is removed from them, until the, the organisms can can purge the toxin back out, and then they're safe to eat again after that. So this, this is what a red tide looks like. You go over there, you can see a beach that's littered with dead fish uh, because uh, they do tend to, uh, when you have this massive blooms, they're not self-sustaining. Eventually the organisms start to die off and as they die off, then they decompose and decomposing uses oxygen, which it takes out of the water and then those fish, things like fish uh, essentially suffocate. Uh, this used to be uh, this used to be a, a problem, not from the, this particular organism in the Great Great Lakes, Lake Erie, especially at one time. It was so polluted that there was so much algae growing in the summer when it was warm, and Lake Erie is the shallowest of the Great Lakes. If you've never been to the Great Lakes, you, you have no idea how big, what were, you know, how how big. I mean, you can't see the other side. You get out in a boat in the middle of the lake, you can't see the shore. These guys will be out in the ocean. You, I mean, it's hard to imagine lakes that are that large unless you've lived there, you know, and been around them. But Lake Erie would have these massive dead zones because so much algae, it would die, it would decompose, it would rob the water of all the oxygen, the fish would die. Now, this has since been cleaned up quite a lot because we know what caused that. It was excess phosphorus and nitrogen getting into the water, which was feeding the growth of the algae, and, uh, and we have that problem in the Chesapeake Bay to some degree as well. Okay. So, red tides. Now, there's also uh, another uh, type of dinoflagellate uh, that's not real common around here, but it does exist. It's called Fisteria, another one of the mysteries of the English language is why is that pronounced Fisteria? Why do we even bother to put the P on the front of it? Okay, usually you'd expect it to be PH, but it's not, it's PF. Uh, I have no idea why it's like that. Uh, English, I, I really feel sorry for people who have to learn English as a second language because it is, it is not easy. Okay, uh, uh, you know, pronunciations differ. You know, you, it's incredible. Uh, for instance, uh, okay, you could pronounce that fish. 
pH is, you know, an F sound, a Y, CH, you know, it could be sh on the end, that could be fish, you know. How do you teach somebody, you know, how to do that? At any rate, let's get back to Fisteria. Uh, Fisteria is a, uh, is found in, uh, in, in brackish water, uh, in salt water, mostly, um, and it, and particularly in shallow bays where there is a lot of nutrients and it's warm, uh, especially in the summer. Chesapeake Bay is one. The Albemarle Sound was another one down uh, in, uh, inshore from the Outer Banks, between the, the mainland and the Outer Banks. And uh, it was interesting because they knew it was a problem. This is a, 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 a it's a It's these kind of microscopic little things. But they produce, when they can grow, uh, they change form. And when they, when they have good growing conditions, they produce a toxin that can stun fish. It doesn't kill them, it stuns them, and then they start feeding on the fish. They'll find big open sores on the side of the fish where these things are, are, are feeding on it. Okay? Uh, and so this was an issue that researchers were trying to you know, understand how this thing, what its life cycle was, because it doesn't do it all the time, what, what causes it to, to go into this mode, and, and where is it in between, because it obviously is, a, turns out there's like 15 different forms of this one organism that it goes through in its life, life cycle. At any rate, um, so they were raising it, I think this was at uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, they were raising it in big tanks because you know, you've got to raise enough of it to study. Um, and they noticed that, at, not at first, but after a little while, they noticed that people who were working with it were having some mental problems. They were having short-term memory loss. Couldn't remember uh, what, what they had done, just done. Uh, they uh, uh, got headaches. Uh, they would get uh, blurred vision sometimes. And it turns out that the toxin can be actually airborne when enough is produced, and it affects people. Now, once they do that, they went back out to your source. If you want to know what's going out out in the water, you go to the watermen because they can tell you because they're there all the time. And and yes, some of them reported that when they had seen large fish kills and they had been in that area, they had felt a few of the same symptoms. So Fisteria became this killer organism. Now, it's, we have not had a big problem in the last probably 10 years now, but it's still out there. We know it's out there. If you go out and dredge the muck in the bottom of those bays, you'll find this stuff moving out there. And they're just little single-celled organisms. But you get enough of them, and then it matters. Uh, last year, again, you probably don't follow this, but Lake Erie had a, an area, the, the city of Toledo, which most of the cities along the lake take their water supply from the lake, was unable to use the lake water for a period of time because there was another algae growing there. This was a cyanobacterium. It also produces a liver toxin. And uh, they had had a bloom of that and they, they had to stop taking water out of the lake. Now, when it gets colder, the stuff dies off and then it's safe to use again. But, uh, so these little microscopic organisms have an impact on us. On us, not just kind of certainly the rest of the environment. Okay, here's another one that has a great impact on you. You just don't know it. These are diatoms. Diatoms are little glass boxes filled with 
cytoplasm and chloroplasts. They're, they're photosynthetic. You can see they come in a wide range of shapes. Um, they're mostly, uh, well, they're marine and freshwater both. But basically, their shell has two, side, two parts to it that fit together like a box, you know, one over the other. And then when they reproduce, each half builds a new half and, uh, and gets, and they can, uh, and the small one builds a new larger half, the large one builds a new smaller half. And they, they, but they fit together like a box. These are so common. They are one of the primary sources of carbon cycling in the oceans and production of oxygen. Okay, now, they're also used commercially. Okay, so why would we, what would we do with these things? Well, in the past, or the, it's been around here for a while, there are areas where there were many, many diatoms, and as they died, these little silicon boxes, glass essentially, accumulated in the sediments. And today we know those as diatomaceous earth. Well, it turns out that uh, we can use, we use that. We use it as a filter. It's, it goes into filtering systems. It's also used in cosmetics. Uh, if you uh, do uh, use an exfoliant ever, you know, get those old dead cells off, it's supposed to, what better to, to scrape those old dead cells off than something that's filled with little tiny glass shards? Because that's what these shells are, like little bits of glass. It's used in toothpaste to scrape the crud that accumulates on your teeth off when you brush your teeth. Very, very common uses. Okay, so, uh, so they release a, a lot of free oxygen. They fix carbon dioxide. So that means they're taking carbon dioxide out of the water, which means that more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will dissolve in the water. Okay, so this is important. And then they become part of the sediment. So filtering, abrasives, they're used as insulation materials and insulation materials. Again, little, tiny, single-celled, microscopic uh, organisms. Uh, so the proteases, while they're not something, it's not something you're going to run into out on the street every day, although they're all out there all the time, um, we, we have made uses of many of them. Diatoms are fun to watch, too, uh, live ones, because they kind of glide along the surface of the slide, and nobody knows exactly how they do that yet. They don't have a flagellum or cilia or anything. They can move, but, no, but there's no pseudopodes, there's no flowing inside of them. But they move, as you would know, how do they do that? It's really not clear how they manage that. Okay, then there's other algae that are characterized by their colors. This is the golden algae. It's kind of a, a, a it's a brown, it's a yellow-brown color, uh, common in, in fresh water. Uh, it's the, there's a, they have a pig, pigment. Remember, if you're doing photosynthesis, you have to have pigments for, to absorb light, certain light frequencies, okay? And, and this, uh, they have a particular pigment that gives them that color. We have brown algae, which are very common. Um, uh, kelp is a brown algae. It looks kind of green, but it's actually, when you get up close to it, it's, it's, it, there's a, it has a brownish uh, cast to it. Um, some are tiny, 
but giant kelp, uh, kelp can be a mi almost a mile long, one strand of kelp. Uh, this is off the coast of California. You will find it. I don't think there are any kelp beds here on the, on the Atlantic side. But off, off in the Pacific, off California, there are huge areas of kelp beds. Uh, and this is where the sea otters live. Uh, it's a whole ecosystem in itself. It's like a forest. If people dive down into there, you can almost get lost. It's like a forest down under the water. And it's a very unique ecosystem because we have sea urchins, and sea urchins have little gnawing jaws on them. We'll talk about those later when we get to animals. And they like to eat the kelp, and they especially eat the, what they call the holdfast, the part of it that helps attach it to the bottom. Uh, and then when they eat enough of that, it, it breaks free and goes you know, floating off. Um, and so they, if you have enough sea urchins, they can devastate a kelp forest. Well, how do we get rid of the sea urchins? Sea otters eat sea urchins. And so uh, there was a time when there were very few sea otters left. Uh, they've been protected and they, the population had come back. And as they come back, the kelp forests have increased as well. Now, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a constant equilibrium here, you know, balancing act between species. Very interesting ecosystem. Uh, like I said, you don't see that much around here. Um, they have the, the, these are multicellular, but they don't have a lot of cooperativeness between the cells, so they're still considered algae. They actually uh, produce along them little bladder-like things that are filled with a gas that helps hold it up in the water. Uh, otherwise, you know, they would be probably too heavy to do that. Very, very, very interesting. These are uh, brown algae. Uh, here's here's uh, just a picture in the, the kelp forest. Here's what they look like. And they can be extremely large. Okay, then we have the red algae. Uh, multicellular. They uh, appear red when you shine a white light on them. Okay, if you were to dive and use natural light, they would not be red. Red is the, uh, uh, they appear red to us, but only when we shine a light on them, they reflect red light. And that's because if you look at the, the spectrum of light as it goes down in the water, um, it's your blue wavelengths that penetrate the farthest into the water. Red does not penetrate very far. So if you're down, these tend to be deeper water algae. They tend to be fairly fragile algae, uh, ones that can't stand being pounded by the waves. Uh, and uh, then being red is fine because you can't use the red light anyway. You can use the other colors of light to do photosynthesis, but you can't use, the red light's never gonna get down there. So you, you can be red and reflect any red light and it isn't gonna make any difference. Uh, so these are referred to as the, the red algae. Okay, so this is just, uh, if you look at the depths, red light doesn't penetrate more than about seven and a half meters. So if you're thinking about that, that's about 25 feet down. Go below 25 feet, you're not going to see, you know, red light does not penetrate. So it's really the blue and a little bit of the green, but mostly blue that penetrates the deepest. Okay, economic importance of some of these? Well, there's, if you eat sushi that has the, the green wrapped around the outside, that's an algae called nori. Um, 
I don't know how many of you eat sushi. Um, it's become relatively popular today. Uh, probably 20 years ago, you'd ask a group of students if they ate, alpha, ate this, and they'd probably think, no, I don't get any raw fish. Uh, I think it's much more common today. Uh, we use uh, the auger that we used in the lab to make your petri dishes. Comes from algae. Okay. Um, it's also used in cosmetics because it's a, a thickening agent. There's carrageenan, which is used as a thickening agent in dairy products and a food stabilizer. If you look at, sometimes you'll find that in one of the ingredients in foods. Uh, it comes from algae. Um, it's as a thickening agent uh, today. Of course, one of the things that makes if you buy really good ice cream, expensive stuff. You notice right away there's a feel in your mouth to it. And this comes from the cream that's in it. It, 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 it covers the inside of your mouth and it st stays there and it has that creamy feeling that uh, we're very, most people are, are fairly uh, uh, attentive to the feel of things in their mouth, okay? All right, so, but you know, but there's a lot of calories, okay? Who wants to eat stuff, well, we all want to eat stuff with lots of cream in it, but. It's not very good for us. And so we make ice cream um, that's low calorie, or, right? How do you do that? Well, you don't use so much cream. But then it doesn't have the right feel. And so they add to the, that ice cream, this carrageenan, to make it have more of the feel that an expensive ice cream using more cream would have. It's just a matter of what people like. A thickening agent. So algae have a, a fair amount, besides the fact that they produce as much oxygen as all the land plants put together, and they affect fishing, they are taking carbon out of the water, which then takes carbon out of the atmosphere, which today with carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere is important. Um, they uh, are also uh, used uh, in, in many ways and, and that you did, wouldn't notice. You would never notice. And of course, if you uh, come from uh, uh, Asia, people eat algae. Algae is quite commonly eaten in, in many parts of the world. You don't see it too much in the United States, but it's, it's commonly a, a food in, in many places. It's just eaten usually raw, it's like a salad type thing. Uh, Andrew Zimmerman eats this stuff all the time, but then he'll eat anything. Uh, if you've ever watched his, his show. Okay, then we have uh, green algae. Green algae is almost all freshwater. It is the closest group of algae to land plants, and is thought to be the ancestor of the plants that are now out on land. And the reason are these three items right now. Uh, they use chlorophyll A and B, which is what these plants out here are doing, They're using A and B. Obviously, the brown golden algae, the brown algae, the red algae are, are not using very much chlorophyll A and B. They have other pigments. Um, they um, have start, form starch grains in the chloroplast. Um, they store their excess food as starch in essence. Many of the other algae uh, store it as various oils, but these use form starch, which trees out here do, or plants do on land, 
And lastly, the cell walls are made out of cellulose, which is what land plants make their cell walls out of. And so it, uh, it is thought that uh, ancestral green algae uh, gave rise to plants on land. And, and, uh, and when we get to plants, we'll talk about the problems that cause when you leave the water and come out on the land. It's not a simple thing to do. Uh, there's some problems to be overcome. Okay, so these are the green algae. Um, this is called ball box right here. This is a, these are individual little cells on the outside that have flagellae uh, on them. They form into a ball and the whole colony moves like that. And then inside of it, it'll form new little colonies reproducing. And then when enough, and there's several of these in here, the original colony simply breaks open and releases new colonies into the, into the environment. Uh, this is a very small one. Uh, this is Pomenonis, which you probably tried to look at in lab, and it just looked like little green dots on the microscope. That's about all you were going to see. And then this is a, a often called sea lettuce. It looks a lot like lettuce. It's an edible green algae that, uh, that's commonly eaten. Uh, again, not so much in our culture. Green algae often form symbiotic relationships with fungi uh, to make lichens. We'll talk about the lichens in more detail when we do the fungi. But if you look at any of these tree trunks out here, you'll see some grayish green scaly stuff on the tree trunks. This is an algae uh, and fungus combination, they're lichens. Uh, the algae couldn't survive there because it's too dry uh, and to, too much exposure to direct sunlight, to, to ultraviolet. Uh, the uh, fungus isn't going to survive well there because there's not a lot of nutrients available to them, but the two together can live. The fungus provides a protective environment for the algae. The algae do photosynthesis and share the nutrients they produce with the fungus. So the two uh, work together. They, pardon? Let me see. Uh, no? Okay. Uh, they also reproduce by alternation of generations. Uh, we're going to talk about that with plants. This is a unique reproductive pattern that's found in plants, um, and the green algae use the same basic reproductive strategy. They also reproduce by fragmentation. If you just break apart, uh, the new ones can settle and grow. Now, it'd be like us just falling into a bunch of pieces and each of them growing up into the new one of you. you know, that's, we don't do that, thank goodness. Uh, but lots of organisms do, okay? Uh, <laughs> this organism that you see over here, this is a, an interesting green algae. Uh, you, these are fingers underneath here. Somebody is holding these. Each one of these is a single cell. It looks like a plant that you picked out here under the dirt, but in fact it's an algae and each one of these is a single cell. Very large cells. Very, very interesting organism. So when we get to the protease, you can see that there's just all kinds of stuff. And, and, and they don't fit neatly into any of the other categories. And so they're all lumped into, into this group. Because right, you have to put them somewhere. This is uh, the alternation of generations. I'm going to not go over this now because we're going to go right back into this with plants and I'll explain it better more in there. Um, this is Spirogyra. This is a green algae. Uh, it does sexual reproduction. Two strands will line up next to each other. They will 
the uh, cytoplasm from one will go move over into the other one. They'll form a, a, a zygote, which then goes through meiosis and produces new organisms. Okay. Um, this is alba. This is the sea lettuce, commonly eaten. This is another green algae that you would see in the summer when it's been warm and there's been a lot of nutrients in the water. You get the scum-like stuff on top of the water. That's a common green algae. In a wide variety, the green algae come in some very interesting shapes. Uh, these are all different types of green algae. Each one of them has uh, very unique shapes. Uh, they're really very pretty to look at under a microscope. Uh, so that is the protease kingdom. Now remember, the goal here is for you to be able to take a description of an organism and know which of the groups to put it in, okay? So one of the keys here for the, these, remember they got a lot of variety here, but one of the keys is that generally they are unicellular and they're eukaryotic. Eukaryotic and unicellular tells you protease. Okay? Eukary or, uh, prokaryotic and unicellular tells you bacteria or archaea and then you need something more to figure out which one it is. That's the level at which I'm interested in your understanding these groups. I'll give you a lot of detail, uh, just to give you an appreciation for the, the amount of, of variety there is out there. The variety of living stuff is just, uh, uh, it's, it's more than anybody can really learn, one person can learn. But, uh, but there's some key features and that's what I'm trying to focus on. Why do we place these organisms in this category? What are their unique features? Any questions about proteins? All right, let's introduce plants. They fit nicely together. All right, so here in this, uh, we're going to look a little bit at uh, plant evolution. You know where where they come from, uh, the life cycle, the alternation of generations, life cycle that you can find in all plants. This will be one of the key features of plants is alternation of generations. Gonna look at the adaptations plants have for various lifestyles. Okay. Uh, you know, like plants that catch insects, you know, that's a variation. And uh, adaptations of plants to desert climates, uh, you know, they obviously have to change in order to do that. And then we'll look at the basic groups of plants and there will be kind of four basic groups uh, that we'll go through. All right, so as we just went over, plants came from ancestral green algae, the same photosynthetic pigments, they store excess carbohydrates as starch, they have cellulose in their cell wall. When they go through mitosis, and remember when you did mitosis last semester, probably did it mostly with animal cells, as they, as they divide it, they pinch to get, you know, down in the middle to form two cells. Plants don't do that because they have cell walls. So what they do is the chromosomes have been moved into the two sides, they grow a new cell wall in between. That's how you divide the cytoplasm. You have to grow a new cell wall in there. That's called a cell plate when it first starts. You find that in, in the green algae, you find it in plants. You do not find that in many of the other algae. So. 
All of these are characteristics that tie the plants that live on land with the green algae. Okay? It's the kind of evidence you look for. Now, for the plant kingdom, some of the characteristics, um, they're, they're all, with a few, very few exceptions, they're multicellular. If they were unicellular in doing this, they would be proteins. They're not, they're multicellular, okay, so they're not proteins. They are photoautotrophs, most of them. There are parasitic plants, they have no pigment in them. They attach to other plants and suck the juices out of them. Okay. So that, that, that goes on. So they're not all photoautotrophs, but most plants are. Most plants are photosynthetic. Uh, so you, and that means you take your energy from sunlight, you get carbon dioxide from the air, that's your carbon source, and then all of the minerals, all the other nutrients you need have to be brought up out of the ground and dissolved in water. Because that's where they are. They're all dissolved in the water. All the various ions that they need, you know, the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and sodium and all the different things they need are dissolved in the water. Now, you'll see if you look at this, this is how we're going to go over these. We look at the beginning origins of plants, and we have an early division into plants that we will refer to as non-vascular plants. Uh, and we'll get into that more a little bit later. There are, are bryophytes is the other name. These are mosses, okay, uh, primarily. And we have a lot of moss around here. Moss is common in this area, uh, in, or in Virginia. It's... Normally, well, it, it's really pretty cold tolerant, it'll survive, but we have a relatively moist climate here and moss are very happy with that. But of course, you, you never see moss getting bigger than about that big, maybe a little bigger. Okay, and that's because they're non-vascular. We'll get into what that means. The other groups developed vascular tissue to move water upwards. Mosses don't have that. Um, and so that means they could grow taller. Why do you want to grow taller as a plant? Because what are you competing for to do photosynthesis? You're competing for, with all the other plants, for sunlight. Whoever gets the highest gets the most sunlight. Okay, so there's selection is going to going to drive getting taller. You either get taller or you learn to live in the shade. And some plants just don't bother getting taller. They just manage to live in the shade. They're the understory, uh, and they do okay but they don't grow as fast, they don't reproduce as fast, okay? All right, so vascular tissue. Um, then we're going to have uh, another division, which is the formation of seeds. We'll talk about what seeds are and why they're important. And we have a group here that are vascular plants, but no seeds, and those are gonna be the ferns. Again, ferns are pretty common around here. Right, pretty much out in the woods in a lot of places here. Um, then we have another division up farther up here uh, that uh, these guys have the seeds. And then we're going to look into a break into two ways. Uh, the gymnosperms, which had formed the seeds in cones, okay, called pine trees around here, a variety of other fruit, you know, plants. And then you have those that uh, develop flowers and fruit, which are the dominant plants for the most part on the planet. They're the most successful. 
Uh, and it's uh, they, a lot of co-evolution between that group and insects because uh, they need to get uh, pollinated, which is really what flowers are for, are to get somebody to do the work of pollinating for you. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll go through all that as we go through the different groups. But those are the four major groups. So we have non-vascular plants, we have vascular seedless plants, we have cone-bearing seed plants, and we have flower-producing seed plants, and they also produce fruit. The only ones that produce flowers and fruits are these guys right here, the rest be not. All right, so here's a typical plant life cycle. Alternation of generations is what it's called. Um, all right, so for humans or animals that we're comfortable with, the only time you're haploid as an organism is really never. You didn't exist as a haploid organism because you didn't exist until the sperm and the egg got together, and now you're diploid. Remember that those terms from genetics? Haploid means one set of chromosomes. Diploid means two sets of chromosomes come in pairs. Okay? Animals are never haploid. Well, that's not tr completely true. There are a few that are, but for the most part, are never haploid. From the time of conception, you are a diploid organism. The only the haploid portion of our life cycle are the gametes, sperm and egg cells. That's it. There's no other time. Plants don't work like that. All right. So when you get ready to reproduce, you have to produce gametes by meiosis. All right. So let's look at our fern up there. That's kind of a mature plant that you might recognize. It goes through meiosis to reproduce, but it does not produce gametes. It produces spores. What's the difference? Well, each spore can germinate into a new plant. But that plant is haploid. It has only one set of chromosomes because the spores were formed by meiosis. And so this thing here is a haploid plant. You wouldn't recognize this as a fern. They're out there. They're about the size of your <coughs> Not much bigger than that. But they're out there. But this is a haploid plant. Now, when it gets ready to reproduce, it forms gametes by mitosis. We form gametes by meiosis. These guys are haploid. They can't do meiosis. Meiosis is impossible for our haploid organism. So it forms gametes by mitosis. They come together to form a zygote after fertilization, um, which is now diploid. And then that grows up to be a new diploid plant. And so the only way I can get from being a diploid plant to new diploid plants is I have to form a haploid plant, which can then form another diploid plant. It, it would be sort of like uh, our sperm and egg cells went off on their own and you know, got an apartment, lived for a while, and then later on decided to get together and, and make a new person. Well, that, that doesn't work, obviously. But that's essentially what's going on with plants. It's called alternation of generations. Now, these have names. Of course, lots of terminology just to confuse you. The diploid portion up here is referred to as the sporophyte generation. Now, the name sporophyte, phyte means plant. Sporophyte are plants that produce spores when they reproduce. Okay, diploid plants produce spores, they're sporophytes. 
The spores grow up to be this generation, which is haploid, and it produces gametes. And so it is referred to as the gametophyte generation because these are plants that produce gametes. We only have one. We only have animals that produce gametes. We don't have anything else. The plants go back and forth between these two parts of the life cycle. Okay. Now, a lot of the times you don't see the gametophyte generation uh, because in the, in the larger, the more advanced plants, it's buried down inside the flower or down inside the comb, but it's still there. There's a little haploid organism down in there which produces the gametes. And we'll be looking at that as we go through these. But this is unique to plants. This, and, and the green algae follow this type of, of uh, reproductive cycle. Alternation of generations. I go from sporophyte to gametophyte, back to sporophyte, back to gametophyte, alternating back and forth between the two types of generations. Only two generations there, okay, sporophyte or gametophyte. I mean, when we say what generation, we mean is which one is, which one of those two is. This is the normal plant life cycle. So as we go through the different kinds of plants, what we're going to do is see how each one of them exemplifies this life cycle. Because they all do. Even the ones that are parasitic go through this life cycle. They produce flowers. The parasitic uh, flowering plants. There are a number of them. Common ones here is something called Indian pipe. It comes up underneath other trees. It's white. Pure white. Grows about this high. And then produces flowers, gametes. No. Does its thing. Gets all its nutrients from the roots of the other tree. Uh, another one which is semi-parasitic, which is common here, is mistletoe. This is a great time of year. Look up in the trees, particularly oak trees. You'll see little leafy bunches up in them. It's mistletoe. It's attached to the branch. It's getting nutrients out of that branch. Now, the mistletoe we have here uh, has green leaves on it, and, and it doesn't drop its leaves. It has the green leaves all year round. Uh, but, uh, and so it's not completely a parasite. Out west, there's a very different kind that's a parasite on conifers, on pine trees. It produces no leaves at all. It is totally parasitic. So there are many different kinds of, of, of those kind of plants. But this is the life cycle. So let me. So what we're going to do is look at uh, the the uh, gradual dominance of diploid or sporophyte generations. We're going to look at the adaptations required to live on dry land. Look at the evolution of pollen and seeds, and then we'll go and look at each of these groups: sporophytes, seedless vascular plants, and then the angiosperms are the flowering plants. Okay. So that's going to be the organization of plants. We'll, go, we'll start on that next slide.